Session number two, and our emphasis um, in the first hour was on the God we image and God's beauty. God is beautiful, and his beauty is seen most profoundly uh, in his Trinitarian life as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so in this session, I want to talk about the image of God um, really from one perspective. Um, And so the nature of humanity is the image of God. The first thing we hear in the Bible about us as people is from God's mouth. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And the Bible declares, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so, this, even that statement itself, gives us the uh, the. Uh, the, the, the inkling into this reality of beautiful community. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Right? That there was going to be community. That there was going to be not just an individual, but a community. Um, and it, this was... Um, okay, let me not get ahead of myself. All right, I'll come back to that. I know that I will eventually. What does this declaration of image mean? Right? What does it mean when God says, let's make man in our image, let's make humanity in our image, and then declares that he has done so? Um, as I quoted at the end of that first session from Elaine Scarry in her book, on beauty and being just, when she says beauty, uh, beauty brings copies of itself into being. It makes us draw it, take photographs of it, or describe it to other people. Um, and so God is indeed reproducing, in some respects, his beauty in the creation of humanity. And what that means is, on an individual level, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time uh, for this hour on the issue of individual dignity, that, that every human being, because of God's declaration that we are his image bearers, every human being from the womb to the tomb uh, is of immeasurable value, dignity, and worth because of God's declaration. And so, um, as it says, humanity has a unique place in God's created world. We're creatures of incomparable value and dignity. Uh, Richard Pratt, uh, a seminary professor, theologian, has a book called uh, Design for Dignity. And in it, makes this statement. He asks his readers at a certain point, he says, I want you to put down my book 
And the next person you meet, I want you to shake their hand and say, hello, your majesty. Because that's how much our dignity is a royal dignity. Um, no matter of socioeconomic status, no matter of race or ethnicity or gender, it's a royal dignity. Uh, Nona Verna Harrison, in her book, God's Many Splendored Image, she writes this. She says in Genesis chapter 1, 26, the word dominion speaks of royalty, which is a facet of the divine image in every human person. Royalty involves dignity and splendor and a legitimate sovereignty rooted in one's very being. Because everyone is made in the image of God and because this image defines what it means to be human, people are fundamentally equal regardless of the differences in wealth, education, and social status. The church, she says, preached this countercultural message in the ancient world and still preaches it today. That this, this is a countercultural message. I got ahead of myself. This is a countercultural message. You know, um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the books of the Torah. Uh, Moses is delivering these books to the people of Israel. Genesis in particular, the people of Israel uh, um, freed from slavery in Egypt. And this declaration in Genesis 1, 26, God made him and his male and female, he created them in his image according to his likeness was about as countercultural a message that you could get in the ancient world. Because right, in the ancient world, in the nation, uh, any nation, like the nation of Egypt, where, e where the Israelites were slaves, there was only one who was in the image of the gods, and that was the king. Uh, and so you only had value and worth if you were some way connected to the king. You were a citizen of that country. So... It's easy for Egyptians to, the Egyptians to enslave the Hebrews. They're not Egyptians. And so they don't, they don't have the same value and dignity and worth as Egyptians do. And so, so not only is it very localized who is the image of the gods, secondly, it's certainly not the case that that applies to women. So in the ancient Near Eastern world, for, God, for, the, for the first message of the scriptures about humanity, <laughs> uh, that men and women are created in the image of God, share that divine imprint equally, was about as countercultural as a message you can get. And so, to Nona Verna Harris's point, this was from the beginning a countercultural message that the church proclaimed, and it's a countercultural message that the church proclaims today. At least we still ought to. Martin Luther King Jr., in his um, I Have a Dream uh, speech, uh, preached in 1965 at Ebenezer Baptist Church uh, here in Atlanta, he said this, he said, the whole concept of the Imago Dei, the image of God, 
is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. Not that they have substantial unity with God, but that every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God, and this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him a worth. It gives him dignity. And we must never forget this this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a bass black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. One day we will learn that. We will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and to respect the dignity and worth of every man. Biblically speaking, this reality, this inherent and unimaginable dignity is actually part of the reason, biblically speaking, that God forbids idolatry. It's part of the reason that he forbids us from giving our worship and devotion to anything in all creation. The second commandment, therefore, is particularly relevant when it comes to the issue of human dignity. The second commandment in Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5, right? The first commandment, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. And then God says, you shall not uh, worship, let me put it on the screen. (laughs) You shall not worship, uh, make for yourself rather a carved image of uh, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath. Uh, You shall not bow down to them or serve them or worship them for I The Lord your God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. You get this throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, the forbidding of people from worshiping idols, something that we've created in our own minds, with our own hearts, giving primacy of place to anything in creation. Um, Isaiah says that all who fashion idols are nothing. (laughs) All the things they delight in do not profit. John, in his letter to 1 John, He ends it, the last words are, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And here's here's the thing. Um, Here's the thing. Yes, right, God is the only one who is worthy of our worship, our adoration, our praise, the giving of all of ourselves to And the other aspect of that is he's already declared what his image in the earth is, and it's us. And so it is actually a dehumanizing thing for people to worship something they've created, which is actually something less than themselves. Idolatry is actually a dehumanizing act G.K. Beale 
uh, who's the president of um, Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, uh, in his book, uh, We Become What We Worship, uh, The Image of God and Its Inversion, he says, Isaiah makes an intentional contrast between the nation of Israel as the work of God's hands and the idols they make as the work of men's hands. God has set up humans as the only legitimate images of God. Worshiping idols is an affront to human dignity in that it prevents people from reflecting God's glory. Since people are made by divine hands to function as legitimate living images, they are to reflect the glory of the image of the living God. In other words, right, as he says, humans, human beings are the only legitimate images of God in the earth by the declaration of God. And so worshiping an idol is an affront to human dignity. And so we rejoice right, in the immeasurable value and dignity that every person has because we are the image of God. And so when God gave the second commandment, right, the, you know, right, it's, it's good to listen to God, right? I mean, he, he gives the commandments for our good, <laughs> right? Um, and so there's a danger in violating the commandment. The danger was that Israel would be led astray by their own desires and that they would be remade in the image of those desires. That their identity, their identity would begin to mirror the images instead of God. Instead of the God that they were made in the image of. Uh, In essence, the second commandment was intended to protect their identity as image bearers to protect their identity of image, as image bearers of the divine creator, secure in his covenant love for them and his promise to be with them always. And so this warning and this danger was not just for Old Testament Israel, but it runs throughout the, the New Testament and applies to us even today. As Richard Pratt says in that same book I mentioned earlier, all Idols eventually will abuse. The difference with God is that he'll never abuse those who serve him. In his mercy, he will lift his faithful images to glory. And listen, this is why, this is why racism and racist ideas are not simply a sinful racism is idolatry because it's a denial of the Imago Dei. It's a denial of the image of God. It is a, it is a, a doxological sin. It's a worshipful sin, worshiping sin, because it is an inordinate form of racial self-love. And that's not original with me. That's I'm quoting uh, Duke Kwan, who's one of the pastors in our Grace DC um, network. Um, it is a denial of the Imago Dei. And so, people are to know that their security as an individual, that your security and your significance 
is rooted in being an image bearer of God. Not, right, not in what society says you are <laughs> or are not, but in the reality that you have the divine imprint as an image bearer of God upon you. I want to um, play another clip for you um, from a, well, this is not from, well, it is from a show, but it's a clip about a show. Uh, anybody know the show This Is Us? Okay, got more people who watch This Is Us than who watch The, the Man in the High Castle. <laughs> That's cool. Um, Sterling Brown, right, who plays on This Is Us. Uh, he won uh, a Golden Globe Award last year. Um, it's interesting, you know, because, you know, we are right t- still... Today, we still have to note and say, well, he's the first African-American to win this, you know, to, to be acknowledged for, uh, for this, right, or for that. Uh, he won the Golden Globe for Best TV Actor in 2018. And this is his, um, it's a two-minute clip of his acceptance speech. And I want to listen, I want you to just kind of listen for what he's saying here about the issue of identity, the issue of dignity, Um, and how he speaks uh, about it. Right? Oprah. Don't want to run out of time. So let me thank my wife. Brian Michelle Bethe, I love you so much. Thank you for supporting me through this whole thing. To my kids, Andrew and Amari, Daddy will see you. I will take you to school in the morning, I promise. Um, I want to thank my cast, which is absolutely amazing, and we take turns leading and supporting one another. I love each and every one of you. To uh, my network, NBC, to Bob and Jennifer, to, to Fox, to Gary, to Dana, but also I want to thank Dan Fogelman. Now, Dan Fogelman... Throughout the majority of my career, I have benefited from colorblind casting, which means, you know what, hey, let's throw a brother in this role, right? It's always really cool. But Dan Fogelman, you wrote a role for a black man, like that could only be played by a black man. And so what I appreciate so much about this thing is that I'm being seen for who I am and being appreciated for who I am. And it makes it that much more difficult to dismiss me or dismiss anybody who looks like me. So thank you, Dan. Thank you, Hollywood Film Press. Please. So you hear kind of his, what was so significant for him um, in this, this role where he thanks the, uh, the producer and director and he says, you know, I've been used to in my career colorblind casting, right? And and by that, right, he means, oh, okay, we realize we don't have any diversity in this, in this, in this piece. We need to get some color. So, okay, here's, we can put an African-American in this spot, right? Um, You know, we all, you you know, we can use that language, like, oh, I just want to be colorblind, right? And that's actually not the idea. No, I would, he says, you wrote a, uh, a role for a black man that could only be played by a black man. And so 
you see me. <laughs> you see me as I am, right? You see me. Um, and because of that, it makes it that much more difficult to dismiss me, right? Or to dismiss those who look like me. He's, he's talking about dignity. <laughs> he's talking about value. He's talking about em, embodied worth. He's talking about a sense of identity that, that is connected to dignity, right? Who are we uh, and how do we know? Where do we get our sense of identity from? What is our, you know, what's our self-identification? Central to identity is the issue of how people view themselves and what we desire inherently, believer or unbeliever, what we desire is an identity that uh, accords with dignity. We desire a self-identity that accords uh, with dignity. And, you know, we can go back and forth in terms of what makes for a self-identity that accords with, with dignity. What does it mean for me to have dignity? Right? And people will have divergent views on this, but for, for us, for me, for those within the body of Christ, it is rooted and grounded in the reality of the image of God. And that's what we all uh, clamor for when we don't have it and we don't receive it. Right? Uh, identity is a person's understanding of who or she is. It's often based on social constructed, meaningful categories that people use to describe themselves. In, in other words, and we'll talk a little bit about this um, uh, later, probably before the end of this hour. Um, but right from, from our earliest days, right, we start to get a sense of dignity or lack of that from our groups, from wherever we belong to, our family, our social groups, uh, whatever uh, they may be. And this, is a, this has been, this much of the human story historically, and then most particularly, we want to just deal with the United States of America, has been a fight for dignity. A, a, a fight for dignity to be afforded to everyone regardless of class or culture or race. Right, you know, what this painting is from? This mural, anybody know? Memphis, Tennessee, right? Um, Claiborne Temple, right? It's really a um, depiction of this picture from 1968, right? Martin Luther King Jr.'s last stop, literally, because that's where he was assassinated, was there for the sanitation workers' strike that started when two um, sanitation workers, African-American uh, sanitation workers, uh, were killed on the truck as the they were caught in the compactor. It was a terrible, rainy, 
uh, day in, in Memphis and they were forced to work. And then when they were tragically killed, the sanitation department refused to compensate their families. And so this became the point and, and the overwhelming majority of those employees in the sanitation department were African-American men. Um, and so these signs were made um, at Claiborne Temple in Memphis, church in Memphis, and they simply, they make a simple declaration. I am a man. I am a man. Look, why would you have to vocally verbalize that with a sign <laughs> to say to a city and to a nation, I am a man? It's because your dignity um, has, has not been afforded to you, the recognition that you are a human being of value and worth hasn't been communicated. And so they had to say it themselves. Uh, one of the workers said this. He says, we were going to demand to have the same dignity and the same courtesy any other citizen of Memphis has. And so it's interesting when you, when you, you know, yes, sociologists, like what makes for a self-identification that accords with dignity? And this is, uh, these four things are uh, from the book Sources of the Self by Charles Taylor. And he says, there are, there are four things that make up a sense of, uh, uh, of dignity, a self-identification that accords with dignity for any person. One, a sense of power, a sense of dominating, two, a sense of dominating public space, three, an invulnerability to power, and four, any self-sufficiency in a sense these are things we try to, to even gin up and manufacture so that we have d dignity in public space, appearing before others. He says, the very way we walk, move, gesture, speak, is shaped from the earliest moments by our awareness that we appear before others, that we stand in public space and that this space is potentially one of respect or contempt, one of pride or shame. We are aware from our earliest days, from the, uh, um, I forget who made this statement. I think I'm quoting uh, Christian uh, psychologist Kurt Thompson here, um, that from, from the moment we open our eyes, we are looking for someone who's looking for us. That, that we are aware that we live and appear in public space and that we, that appearance is, is one of respect or contempt, one of, uh, one of pride or shame. Gregory of Nyssa, church father, 
wonderfully said, says, our God-like beauty is hidden under curtains of shame. Um, this reality that, um, that this is a reality of the fall. <laughs> all, all of, everything I'm talking about, the need to say I am a man, is because of the, of the reality and the permeation of sin into all creation. And so um, we end up fighting for dignity. We end up, you know, oppressed and oppressor. It's interesting when you look at um, Memphis. This is, you know, I was just there last weekend and um, got a chance to visit Claiborne Temple. This is Claiborne Temple um, there in, in, uh, in Memphis. And this door here on the bottom right, that's the, uh, that's the door that those protesters came out of with the signs. The signs were made in Claiborne Temple. They came out, for the pro- out of that door. There's currently um, a project that's underway called um, Claiborne Reborn. That's interesting because in, uh, in Memphis, right, the Lorraine Motel is where Dr. King was assassinated, and that has been turned into a civil rights uh, museum. Uh, and you can go, and I visited that in, in Memphis, but a friend of mine was saying, he said, you know, um, it's necessary. We really need to, that Claiborne Temple is under tremendous disrepair, right? It, it, um, um, and this project is to, uh, to, uh, to, to give it a new birth um, as a space in Memphis um, that, that recognizes the civil rights movement. My friend said to me, he said, you know, much of the challenge in the Lorraine Motel as a site is that this, this, the, um, the story of civil rights in Memphis is the story of death. He said, but this is where there was life and there was hope and there was vision. Um, and this part of the story needs to be the primary story of civil rights in, uh, in Memphis. And part of the reason I'm showing you these, I just took these pictures last weekend. Part of the reason I'm showing this to you is because we're still talking about individual dignity. Um, and, the, and the fight for it and the denial of it in, uh, in the history of our nation, in the history of humanity, certainly in the history of this nation. Um, that building, uh, you see there in the, the, that uh, the stone was dedicated May 14th, 1891. That building was dedicated. And so I was in Memphis to speak at um, Second Presbyterian Church there on some of these same issues that I'm talking to you all about, uh, and they are uh, a good distance away from uh, this area of Memphis, the inner city area of Memphis. But I show you these pictures and because, can you see this? I don't know if you can see that. This is at the, right, so... All right, if we go back, 
right? See uh, right where the stained glass window is up, up top there, right? Building dedicated in 1841. What it says above that stained glass window is Second Presbyterian Church. That building belonged to Second Presbyterian Church. That was their place. It was, their, it was where they worshiped, and they left in 1940 to move to where they're curr they currently are, you guessed it, because of racial issues. Right? This, it was it, it, the oft-repeated story in the church in America of white flight out of black and brown neighborhoods. And so uh, the AM African Methodist Episcopal Church bought the building, uh, and it became their place of worship uh, and this place for... Uh, the civil rights movement. And so, so even the story of, right, there's, there are nuances even to this story of, uh, about dignity, this I am a man, <laughs> you know, um, that are connected to that place and Claiborne Temple and the story of racial animus and division and the denial and the willingness of the church to maintain barriers, and instead of saying, no, the gospel calls us to pursue reconciliation to the hard work of reconciliation, to the, to the hard work uh, of, of, of striving to live as brothers and sisters in, uh, in Jesus Christ, we'd rather stay separate. Um, and so uh, I am a man, this I am a man plaza is part of the Claiborne Reborn uh, project that was launched last year, and that statement actually comes from uh, a sermon uh, by uh, Reverend James Lawson, who is still living. He preached a sermon there. He's the one who, who invited King to come to Memphis, um, and, and at, in this sermon, he said to them, for at the heart of racism is the idea that a man is not a man, that a person is not a person, you are human beings. You are men. You deserve dignity. That was in his message. And that's where that, that, that phrase came from in those signs, I am a man. That became what they were going to declare uh, to the city uh, of Memphis. And so, you know, I'm a... Uh, I'm a... Um, bit of a, a superhero comic book nerd. I grew up that way, collecting comic books. Still have all of my comic books I collected in little plastic sleeves and bins in the house. So, so I'm, in a, I'm like loving these days that all of the, my, the heroes of, superheroes of my comic book youth are on the big screen now in these wonderful movies. I'm so glad for technology that has made it that these are not cheesy movies. Like, anybody remember that first Superman with Christopher Reeves? Right? You try to go back and try to, it's like, I really believed that he was flying? You know? <laughs> right? Or the Spider-Man show, TV show when I was a kid in the 70s where, you know, Spider-Man's supposed to be slinging his web and it's clear as somebody's throwing something like a net, you know? <laughs> right? I'm so glad the technology, right, can make it seem real. <laughs> um, and so, but I, I, I bring this up, these folks, uh, this up because this reality of, 
a dignity and, and worth and, and how we try to fight for, for dignity that, uh, that, um, that, it, that relates to, you know, a sense of having personal power, a sense of invulnerability um, to, to, to power, a sense of a dominating space um, or any sense of invulnerability. Right? I mean, this, was, this is what happens in the Kirill's. You know, anybody know who that is? Power Man and Iron Fist. There you go. Power Man. See, I'm like, the, these are obscure people, right? Power Man, nobody. Power Man and Iron Fist. Bet you know who this next one is, right? T'Challa, right? Um, we make our superheroes, right? We make our superheroes invulnerable. That's what we imagine, like, we want to be these people because they're invulnerable, right? Um, they can't be hurt. Now, like, everybody has some kind of, uh, some kind of weakness that get, ultimately gets exposed. But when we think about being, being um, these, the, the, the heroes that we imagine, they are, um, you know, they exhibit forms of invulnerability and power, right? Because this is what we imagine is the good life, right? I'm, I'll be protected. If I'm just strong enough, if, if nothing can hurt me, then life will be better. Uh, this, anybody know who that is? This woman? Okay, I'm going to tell you. This is, her name is Raven. Now, I'm mostly a Marvel Comics guy, but there was only one DC Comics uh, Yes, that is Raven. <laughs> Raven. I was only, there was only one DC Comics title that I bought in the 80s, and this was Teen Titans, because I love the storyline. And Raven's power is interesting. Now, now okay, right, so Raven is kind of like, uh, like a Genesis 5 and 6 thing. She's, um, she's the product of a, of a demon and a human. Uh, and so, and so she's got this, um, she's got these powers, but Raven is a healer. That's her power. She's a healer. She puts her hands on you and she takes away your ailments, your pain. She, she heals you. She restores you. Um, but there's a price for her. Every, the, she takes, now she, when she heals, she takes on your corruption, right? She takes it, and every time she heals, she's got to fight back the, di- the demon side of her because she's taking on more and more corruption and it's tempting her more and more to live into the demon side of her. And the part of the storyline is eventually she loses that battle and Demon Raven comes out, and that's a really ugly thing, right? However, I bring her up because there's a, what, I think what drew me to her as a character was the reality of vulnerability. Like her, her power was to heal, but she was one who, was, who had to embrace vulnerability. <laughs> she had to have a, a guard down if she was actually going to live. And here's the, here's the thing. We can't pursue reconciliation. We can't pursue unity and diversity um, among others. We, we cannot, we can't do it 
If we're only trying to establish a sense of dignity and worth, um, an identity that accords with dignity that is based on us being in position of power or being invulnerable to harm. It's, as, as I was talking to my brothers in the break earlier, it's messy. Yes, and if you're, you will offend and you'll get offended, you'll hurt someone and you'll be hurt. But this is the power of the gospel for, for all of that to happen and us not actually divide but stay together and pursue, uh, and pursue unity. So what I want to say, again, all of this is to say that truly, truly, in a, in a biblical-centered way, we all desire a self-identity that accords with dignity. But the only self-identity that accords with dignity is one that is rooted in the truth that we're image bearers. Not that I got dignity because I've achieved these awards. I've got dignity because this one, I've made myself immune <laughs> uh, to poverty. I've made myself uh, uh, immune to, uh, to oppression. I've made myself immune to discrimination. The only one that's going to be lasting is one that accords with the reality that we are image bearers. So here's, here's the deal. I got 15 minutes, so what I'm going to do, and this is planned... What I'm going to do is I'm going to start launching into beautiful community because I know uh, everything I got tomorrow is going to take more than an hour. So, so um, here, here's, here's a long quote, okay? I am Presbyterian. <laughs> I've embraced that. <laughs> I've embraced that, Brian. I've embraced that, brother. I'm, I'm Presbyterian. So... I like to quote theologians, right, at length. But here's one that, that listen, um, this became transformative for me um, when I was in seminary and I had to read Herman Bovink, Reform Dogmatics. This is a quote from his volume two of four volumes. Volume two is on God and creation and his statement about the image of God. Um, okay, I gotta, I gotta keep moving. I always wanna kinda go on a tangent, but I'll get to that later, I'm sure. Here, here's this statement. See, I told you it's long, right? But it, it was a money um, thing for me when I, when I was wrestling in seminary. You know, I shared with you my core conviction. This was, this was a part of forming that core conviction in terms of the language of it. And Bobbing writes this, he says, the image of God is much too rich for it to be fully realized in a single human being, however richly gifted that human being may be. It can only be somewhat unfolded in its depths and riches in a humanity counting billions of members, just as the traces of God are spread over many, many works in both space and time, so also the image of God can only be displayed in all its dimensions and characteristic features in a humanity whose members exist both successively one after the other and contemporaneously side by side. And here it is in the bold text. Only humanity in its entirety, 
as one complete organism, summed up under a single head, spread out over the whole earth, as prophet proclaiming the truth of God, as priest dedicating itself to God, as ruler controlling the earth and the whole of creation, only it is the fully finished image, the most telling and striking likeness of God. Saying, and I think he's so right, the image of God is much too rich for it to be fully realized in a single human being. It doesn't matter how richly gifted that human being can be, is, right? That w- what it means for humanity to be the image of God, cannot, the whole story cannot be told by looking at a single person. Um, and I, 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 would, I would add to uh, Bavink's words there and say that the image of God is much too rich to be realized in a single ethnicity or culture <laughs> or people group. If you really want to know, if you really want to see the full picture of humanity as the image of God, he says, here's what you have to have in mind. Here's the vision you have to have. All of humanity summed up under a single head. That head he is talking about is Jesus Christ. The language he's using there comes from Ephesians chapter 1. Of course, I'm getting ahead of myself again because this will be in my sermon tomorrow too, but Paul talks about God revealing um, um, the, the mystery, right, that has been revealed, that, the, that God's purpose, uh, according to the fullness of time. And he says, what is that purpose? To unite all things in Jesus Christ, things in heaven and things in the earth. That word unite can also be translated sum up to sum up everything in Jesus Christ. So that's what Bavink is getting at when he says, only humanity is in in its entirety, redeemed humanity as one complete organism summed up under a single head, doing what we were commissioned to do in the garden, being fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, exercise dominion, right? He says, as prophet proclaiming the truth of God, as priest dedicating itself to God, as, uh, as ruler exercising dominion over the creation, essentially to the glory of God. He said that's the fully finished image, the most telling and striking likeness of God. And so here's the conviction that comes to me from that, is that when we're not living into that vision, we don't really realize what we're missing out on. When we are content in a diverse place to be mono, monoracial, monoethnic, monoculture with all this diversity, we don't actually realize that we are missing out on the experience of what it actually means to be growing into the image of God. And so, um, the, you know, the challenge is, right, if it's up to, we actually prefer sameness. <laughs> if it's up to us, we gravitate towards, uh, towards sameness. Um, but this is where 
humanity is going. This is this vision of beautiful community, right? Um, that we see as I was speaking in the break in Revelation 21, um, the holy, John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God as a bride adorned for her husband. He sees, right, the, he sees the reappearance of the tree of life, right, that was in the garden, and he says its leaves are for the healing of the nations, right, that, that this is what we're going to see, this, this reconciliation. Uh, Paul, that's John. John says, right, in that place, there's no more mourning, no more tears, no more crying, because the former things have passed away. And the one who sits on the throne says, behold, I am making all things new. And this is in the context of the reunion of the nations. Beautiful community. Uh, and this is, this is the last slide, and then we'll, um, we'll stop for a few minutes of questions. Um, th- this is, the challenge is um, be- the reality of brokenness that permeates the human condition. Anyone know what this is a picture of? I hear, I hear whispers. A ziggurat, yes. It's a ziggurat mountain, right? This is, um, this is um, what the Tower of Babel may have looked like. This is a, an ancient ziggurat mountain. Genesis 11. Genesis 11, um, I call Genesis 11 the creation of ghetto living. Um, it's the last time humanity was one big happy family. Um, you know, it's in the, the, from the 90s in L.A., the, the incident, the brutal beating of Rodney King, and, you know, afterwards he says, you know, this statement that becomes infamous, can't we all just get along? Right. Uh, the frustration. Um, and this is the last time all humanity got along. Genesis 11.1 1 says the whole earth had one language and the same words. We were one big happy family. But we were one big happy family in our rebellion against God. So Genesis 6 through 9 is the recreation story, the flood account, because of human sin and depravity, right? God calls out Noah and his family, right? Uh, and, and after the flood, God makes a covenant. And he says, you know, the heart of man is set only on evil from his youth. And he says, even though this is the case, I will never again destroy the earth uh, in a flood like I've done. And then he reissues the creation mandate that he issued uh, to Adam and Eve uh, in, in the first part of Genesis. He says, 
Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Genesis chapter 10 is the table of nations. It is the, the, the descendants of the sons of Noah and where they are over the face of the earth. And it seems like humanity was obedient. God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Genesis 10 is the nations and where they are over the face of the earth. But Genesis 11 takes a look back out of chronological order, right, to how Genesis 10 came to be. The whole earth had one language and spoke the same words. God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And this is what humanity did. It says, and as people migrated from the east, they, plant, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, these are the words, key words, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed from here over the face of the whole earth. God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Humanity said, no thank you. We want to settle down right here and make a name for ourselves. Let's build ourselves a city and a tower stretching to the heavens, lest we be dispersed from here over the face of all the earth. So our union and our unity was in sinful rebellion against the word of God. In fact, we were trying to uh, we were trying to usurp his position as God. Let's build ourselves a city with a tower with its top stretching to the heavens. These ziggurat mountains were, were places designed for, for worship. And so um, the Lord comes down in judgment, right? Comes down in judgment and mercy. Says the Lord goes down to see what they're doing. And he says, behold, they are one people. They're one people, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. In other words, the Lord is saying, if I let them continue in this united front in all their sinful rebellion, they're using all of their ingenuity and their technological know-how to build themselves a city in rebellion against me. If I let this continue unabated, this is only the beginning. They will sink deeper and deeper, further and further into deeper expressions of depravity. And so the Lord comes down and says, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. God comes down and it says that the Lord says, so... The Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. That they, they could know, they, they, when, when confusion came, it says they ceased building the tower. <laughs> they no longer could understand one another. And the Lord then dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. Therefore, the name of that place is called Babel, right? The, na the name that they earned is, is confusion. 
right? And so I call this the creation of ghetto living because now what humanity does is get all of our sense of value and dignity and worth from our tribe. Whatever my ghetto is, my people group, that's who tells me that whether I'm worthy or unworthy, whether I have dignity or don't. And by nature, we're suspicious of your group because <laughs> we don't understand each other. We're suspicious of, of your group because you're not like us. And so you don't do things the way we do. Yep, you do things the wrong way. So, so, so it's okay. You, if you, okay, you want to have value, dignity, worth? Then just become like us. If, can you become one of us? If you can become one of us, then you're, you've got value, dignity, and worth. If not, then you don't. So this reality of the brokenness that permeates the human condition is what wages war against us finding a true sense, a depth of value, dignity, and worth that's rooted in the Imago Dei and that keeps us from being reunited uh, to one another. I'm going to reinforce this tomorrow. This is actually the last slide, and I've gone over. I'm going to reinforce this tomorrow, but i got to say it because... I don't like to end on a somber note like that. <laughs> but here's the, here's the beauty, here's the joy and the glory of God. God confuses their language. Ghetto living is created. Humanity, he disperses humanity over the face of the earth, but now humanity is is at odds with each other in our different groups. And Genesis 12 comes after Genesis 11, right? Uh, well, not just numerically, right? But what's in Genesis 12 is God's promise to Abram. God Abram was a pagan. God calls him, right? Leave your, 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 your father's house and your kindred. Go to a land that I will show you, right? And he makes a promise to Abram, right? Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And he says to Abram, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abram, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We know, because we got the end of the story, <laughs> We know that he's talking about Jesus Christ there, right? But this is God's promise. This is the gospel. Sin, in a sense, forces God's hand, and God forces us into obedience, <laughs> right? Uh, by judging our sin and, and confusing our language so that mercifully we can't go as far deep into our sin as we would if we were all still speaking the same language. And then he says, this is a problem that humanity cannot solve. They have no capacity to do it. So I've got to do it if it's going to get done. 
In you, Abram, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. All the families of the earth that I just dispersed over the surface of all the earth. All of them that are fractured because of sin and brokenness. The declaration in Genesis 12 is in no small measure the declaration of the reunion of humanity under Jesus Christ. The gospel at work that God says, I'm bringing back what's fractured. I'm bringing back what I actually fractured because of sin. I'm going to bring the healing. And so this is the hope that we live into. All right, I got to stop. I got to stop there because I want to have something to say tomorrow. All right. <laughs> All right, let's take a, a, a few questions. Can we do that? Uh, I know we're over time, so uh, I won't be offended if you've got to go. You can Let's take a couple of questions then, and we'll wrap up. Questions for Irwin? Okay, one over here, Suzanne. Say it again one more time. The diversity of the whole of all peoples. So... It's like um, the, right, the vision we have in Scripture is every tribe and tongue and language and people together before the throne. And it's important, that statement I made about colorblindness and colorblindness not being the way, the Bible never gives us that, like, cause, because you're able to identify the peoples and the tribes and the language. You can see them in, in terms of who they are, right? But the barrier to the union and the, and the unity uh, has been permanently uh, done away with. And so it's like we are, um, I, say a couple, I say this a couple of ways. Like I see in Scripture that there's a day coming where there will be no more sin. The sin problem that dogs me still will no longer dog me. But right in the church, we don't say, well, you know, I'm not going to, I'm going to wait till then (laughs) to deal with the sin problem. It's going to be done away with, so I'm not going to worry about it right now. I'm just going to, I'm just going to keep on keeping on, right? No. Right? That's why we have the Spirit, right, who, who convicts us and leads us to repentance so that uh, so we grow in, in holiness, right? It's the same thing with this vision for diversity. Like, I see that's where we're headed. Why would I be content now to say, okay, well, it'll come eventually. So I'm not worried. I'm not worried about it. When I see this is where God is taking us. And it is a rich diversity, right, that... Where, where, I'm talking about glory now, right? Where, as we talked about beauty, where everything fits, where, where, where everyone is functioning in all of their gifting together with, with no conflict, right? To, can, we ima- can you imagine it, right? To, to the glory of God. 
But right now it's messy. We engage that and we have to start being willing to say, willing to be uncomfortable for the sake of pursuing this diversity across lines of difference now. And that is not simply, so, right, the examples that I used uh, in Memphis and um, in, in my Sterling Brown are primarily black and white, but that's not, this is not just, I use those because those are, that's reflective of the deepest divide in the history of America. But that's not what this, that's not the only reconciliation we're talking about. We're talking about across all lines of ethnic and cultural diversity that we're called to be uh, pursuing this beautiful picture of what it means to be humanity. So I don't know if that got at what you were asking, but there you go. Great vision. How about one more quick question, and then we'll wrap up and make our children's ministry team happy. Yeah. Yes. And connecting it to four things. Power, dominating space, mm-hmm. vulnerability to power, self-sufficiency. Yeah. All of which, interestingly, you can see in this story of the human fallen desire for all those, those things. things. Yeah. Question about the, dignity and humility. How yes. Do you see those How things? is that connected to dignity? Um, first, right, our dignity is rooted in the reality that we're the image of God, but we're image, right? So first of all, we're not God, right? So the first area of humility is, right, our, that dignity is rooted in that we're image bearers with immeasurable value and dignity, but we're not God. Our problem is, right, we are, we, we are we're idolaters <laughs> in our sinful state, right? And so, so that hum- in Christ, right, we are, we are brought, in a sense, low into that humble position of exalting God, right, um, and uh, not devaluing ourselves, but uh, of bringing ourselves under humbling ourselves before the hand of God, right? And then in our relation with one another, right, we, this humility is expressed in, in actually valuing the other image bearer and image bearers and not then imposing upon them a standard for what it means to be human <laughs> that is rooted in our own cultural values and behaviors, right? And so, so in, in one sense, I think of it this way. Um, James, the, the, the book of James, right? James, James lambastes the church for the sin of partiality, how they treat the rich better than they treat the poor, right? And he sit, but he sets them up for it in the first chapter when he says, let the rich boast in his humiliation. Let the poor boast in his exaltation. That for you rich, privileged, have it in society, for you whom the society says you are all that in a bag of chips, 
You're wonderful. We want to know you. We want to get close to you. James is like, there's a different economy in Jesus Christ. You, what you're, you're boasting is, oh, yeah, I'm valued, but I'm not all that. I'm, I've, been, I've been brought to a place of humility in Jesus Christ. I thought that I was better than others because of everything that society was telling me, right? And for the poor, he says, right, the, the underprivileged, those, the have-nots, right, those who are on the margins, who the society says you're nothing, worth nothing. In Christ, your economy is you are royalty. You're royalty. And I think that what James is doing in his messaging there is saying, because these are, they're together in the church, right? It's not like they're separate, they're together in the church. That the, so so that, that, that boasting is not separated. That the rich boasting in their humility is worked out by helping the poor boast in their exaltation. Bringing their privilege, their resources to bear in a way that elevates those who the world says you have not and you are not, right? And so, um, and so that's more than, you know, talking about humility, but, but, but it's, it's, it's there and it has to be kind of engaged. So, all right. So can I, can I make the announcement? Absolutely. Yes. Tell oh, us about sorry. Concert. the concert. This will be quick. So my son, who I played the clip of his song, um, is uh, he wanted to be a blessing to, uh, to me and to the institute that we are building. And so he, he said uh, he wanted to do a benefit concert uh, for the institute in Chattanooga, uh, Tennessee, where he lives. And so we're doing that on Saturday, February 9th, and I'll provide this information because I know we're only a couple hours away from chat. Would love if any of you would want to just, it's at a place called the Camp House, which is a coffee shop, eatery, slash place where church worships and they do concerts and community events there um, on Saturday, February 9th from uh, 6.30 to 9 p.m. It's going to be, there'll be a set of music. Uh, so, so Chill is his sa- stage name, S-E-A-U-X. Because uh, he took French, All right? So chill. Um, <laughs> uh, so it's so chill and friends. We'll be doing a good bit of original music, uh, and then some some standards, uh, a set of music, and then we'll have a a 25 minute panel discussion with some Christian leaders on uh, the need, the the ongoing need for pursuing racial reconciliation in the church in America, and then there'll be a second set of, uh, of music uh, for, to wrap up the night. So that's Saturday, February 9th. They're all invited. There's an Eventbrite uh, sign-up that'll be available within the next few days, so I'll make sure to get that out to y'all. All right. Join me in thanking Erwin for teaching us tonight. Thank you. Thank you.